Well, Pastor Ron was talking about church planting and mission. It's my uh, privilege to welcome to Willingdon this morning the Canadian director of C2C Network, Pastor Mark Birch. Uh, C2C Network is literally a network from C2C in Canada and now the United States as well, encouraging church planting and also encouraging the multiplication of existing churches. So, uh, Pastor Mark is the Canadian director. Before becoming the Canadian director of C2C, he was uh, a pastor here in British Columbia at a number of different churches, and God used him in mighty ways. We thank God for just the passion that he has for the Word of God, his desire to see the gospel preached and to see Canada reached. And so it's just a joy to have him here this morning. He's here with his wife, Carolyn. They have three adult children and three grandchildren. So let's welcome Pastor Mark this morning. <clears throat> and let's just bow our heads in prayer uh, as uh, Pastor Mark opens up Psalm 19 to us this morning. Let's pray. So, Father, we uh, thank you again for the gift of gathering as your people and opening your word. And we pray that our hearts would be receptive, that we would hear, Lord, what it is that you want to say to us this morning through your word. Grant us understanding, and may we know how to apply it to our lives, to live your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you work in our hearts by your spirit. And I pray that if there is anything that might distract us, Lord, I pray that you would bind the work of the enemy and that your spirit would be free to speak to us and to work. Thank you for my brother, our brother. I pray that uh, he would preach with joy and with freedom, with courage and boldness. And we thank you for the way that you have formed him and prepared him for this day. And Lord, we just surrender ourselves to you in this moment and say, Lord, speak to us. Have your way among us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Oh, it's a great privilege to be with you, and I would ask you to have your Bibles uh, open to Psalm chapter 19. Uh, as I understand, in the spring break weekends that sort of surround these weeks of uh, school break, you're looking at three particular psalms. Uh, in between some longer series. And so this weekend, as Pastor Ray mentioned, is Psalm 19. And I think it's a very appropriate psalm, and probably some would say maybe the greatest need that we all have, and that is to have our eyes lifted out of the daily grind of life, out of the 24-7s, out of the muck and mire of just simply going through ordinary day-in and day-out life, going to work and paying the bills and fixing the car and all of that, to have our eyes lifted above the ordinary. And what this scripture tells us uh, in a synopsis is simply this, God wants to be known. God wants to be known and he makes himself known. He reveals his glory. He displays his works. In fact, he shouts out his existence is what Psalm 19 would tell us. Uh, As a guest, I have learned to uh, trust the Holy Spirit that he has something to say to every person in the audience, because obviously as a guest, I don't know you personally, and I I could only guess or imagine what may be going through your minds even right now, what's going on in your life. And in a congregation this size, every circumstance more than likely is represented around the room as far as life's situations and work and sicknesses and marriage and family and all of those things. But knowing that the Lord has something to say to us. But one thing that I do know about every single man and woman and boy and girl in this room, without a question, one thing I know certainly is that every person in this room is hungry for God. 
Now, whether or not you know that or not, and whether or not you yourself would say this, I know that it is true about every man and woman and boy and girl in this room, you are hungry for God. And you say, well, how can you say that with such confidence? I can only say it with confidence because the scripture tells us that this is true. Ecclesiastes 3 says that God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity, in the hearts of men and women. God has placed this knowledge of something more. Anthropologists call it, literally, they have a term for it, the God consciousness. That no matter where you go on the planet, on any of the seven continents, to the remotest tribe or the most urban of urban centers, there is a desire within men and women's souls for something beyond the ordinary. Something beyond the daily life and the daily grind. That there's got to be a meaning of life that is beyond just these 70 or 80 years that we may have. And the central message of Psalm 19 is really straightforward. It's this, that the universe was made to show us the glory of God, and we were made to see it and to respond to it. And so David, who wrote the psalm, is inviting us to have our eyes open to the glory of God in the created world and the glory of God in the written word. And underlying that text is that assumption that we've just been talking about. The assumption that there is a hunger and a search for eternity in every human heart. A desire for, quote-unquote, something more. Something outside the boundaries of our senses. Something that can answer the big questions that we have about life. Where did we come from? Where are we headed to? Is there more to my life than simply going to work to earn some money to pay the bills in order to go to sleep, to get up and go to work to earn some money to pay the bills and this endless cycle? Is there more to life than this? And I'll date myself a bit, but there have been like likely hundreds of songs and novels and movies written on this theme, but you too had a great one years ago. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that sentiment that there's got to be something beyond life. The big philosophical term for this something more is called transcendence. Uh, Transcend just simply means to rise above, to get out of the daily grind, to, to live above. Webster's defines it this way, exceeding the usual limits or beyond the ordinary, beyond our experience, that there should be something that transcends daily life. I love Ken, Tim Keller's writings in a, in a recent book. He quotes from a, I suppose he's a brilliant fellow because he's been a prophet at Columbia University in New York City for 20, 30 years. And he pens these words, we cannot bear life by living only in the present. Facing one disconnected event after another, pursuing only instant desire. We are future-oriented beings, and so we must understand ourselves as being in a story that leads somewhere. We cannot live without at least an implicit set of beliefs that our lives are building towards some end, some hope to which our actions are contributing. We must imagine some end to life that transcends our own tiny allotment of days and hours if we are to keep at bay that dim, back-of-the-mind suspicion that we are adrift in an absurd world. Now, that's a lot of heavy philosophical thinking. Welcome to church Sunday morning. But what Psalm 19 tells us and tries to do is to pull back the veil a bit, to let us get out of the daily grind and the muck and mire and to lift our eyes and to give us a glimpse into the transcendent world, into the heavenly realm. What is it that you're living for? 
Why are you on this planet at all? How did you get here? You are told categorically in the science classroom these days that you're only here by accident. A great cosmic accident that created the human race. Is that true? Or were you created for something greater? And the answer of the Bible is that you were created to know and to revel in the glory of God. And so Psalm 19 opens with these words. The heavens declare the glory of God. Press pause. Stop. We'll just pause there. Uh, This doesn't count as part of the message time. We're going to do a message before the message. We need a sidebar to talk about the glory of God because that word is very, very important. The word glory carries with it the sense of weightiness or heaviness. The word is translated, this Hebrew word, in various ways as significance, as scope, as capacity. And Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the weightiness, the heaviness. Look up, the skies are continually recounting the glory and the majesty and the greatness of our God. When the Greeks translated the Hebrew Old Testament into their language, they chose the Greek word doxa. Now that word we're a little familiar with because we sing a song called the doxology, which is a study of the praise of God or lifting up the praise of God. And doxa carries with it the idea of light being revealed, of brilliance and eminence. And so combine those two words together, the heaviness, the weightiness, the scope, the significance, and then the light, the brilliance, the eminence of God. And so to be in the presence of God is to experience his glory. And what we know from the scriptures is that most often when people encountered the glory of God, it was a profound experience and the weight and the heaviness and the light and the distinction of God put them on their faces in worship. Isaiah 6 is one of those visions where Isaiah goes into the throne room and he has this vision of being lifted up into the heavenly realms and the the temple is being filled with the glory of God and the angels are crying out, holy, 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 who is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory and the, the place shakes and Isaiah finds himself saying, oh, woe is me. Woe is me, this insignificant little man. Who am I to be in the presence of a mighty God? And I saw God and oh no, he sees me. I'm a sinful man and I live among a sinful people. Ezekiel has a very similar experience. Chapter 1, he has a vision of the heavenly realms. And the last verse of Ezekiel 1, he finds himself on the face in worship. I saw him and I fall on my face. And if you know the book of Ezekiel, you know this recurs six times throughout that book where God comes and visits him and manifests his glory to him. And every time Ezekiel is on his face, and it's almost a humorous text because in Ezekiel it says, and the Spirit of God lifts me by the scruff of the neck is really what it is, like a cat being lifted up. And he's like, no, stand up, boy, I got work for you to do. And Ezekiel just keeps falling down in the presence of the Lord. And the Lord has to pick him up and say, no, no, I'm sending you out. We know for sure, we know this absolutely for sure, that the day will come when every person on the planet sees and responds to the glory of God. Ezekiel 39 says, I'll set my glory among the nations. Habakkuk 2, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Philippians 2 says, God has highly exalted him, speaking about Jesus, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The glory of the Lord revealed. Oh, how we need it. 
One of the most tragic commentaries in Israel's history in the Old Testament is when they have a wicked priest named Eli who's leading the spiritual life of the nation, and he drifts from God, and the nation drifts from God. His sons are evil. The Lord casts his judgment on them. They enter into war. The boys are both killed in battle. The father hears the news. He himself has a heart attack. He dies. The Ark of the Covenant is captured by the enemies. One of the daughter-in-laws is giving birth to a son. She dies giving birth to that child. But before she dies, she names that little boy, and she gives him a horrible name. She names that little boy Ichabod. And she names him this, it says there in Samuel 4, she names him Ichabod saying, the glory has departed from Israel. What a horrible chapter in the life of this nation. And how desperately we need to see the glory of God in our lives. Would you agree with me? How desperately Canada needs to see the glory of God. How desperately North America needs to see the glory of God. That God would sweep by the winds of his spirit from coast to coast and north and south and east and west. And that he would awaken the nation to the glory, the majesty, the power, the significance of our great God. We need to see it. To be reminded again that God is powerful and we are not. To be impressed again with how big God is and how tiny we are. James MacDonald says this, Transcendence is a healthy dose of insignificance to a race whose root sin is pride. I like that phrase. It's a healthy dose of insignificance. We need that dose of insignificance from time to time. Drink it up. Take that medicine. You need to be reminded that you're nothing. I'm sorry to say that to you, but you need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. We're one of currently seven and a half billion on the planet. Do you think anybody knows your name? You have a thousand Facebook followers. Who cares? The world doesn't know you exist. Uh, This is encouragement for you on Sunday morning. And the world is a tiny planet in a huge galaxy, but our galaxy is just one tiny galaxy in billions of galaxies in a vast universe. And you think this tiny speck of dust called Earth and the even tinier little specks of humanity called you and me matter at all? In fact, the psalmist says, how majestic is your name, O God? When I look at the heavens, the glories of the heavens, I look at them, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place, the universe, what is man that you're mindful of us? The fact that you even know that we exist, God, this is amazing to me. So John Piper says, if you don't see the greatness of God, then all the things that money can buy become very exciting If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a street light. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. Oh, my friends, we've got to get lifted out of this life. We've got to get lifted out of the media, out of the culture, out of politics, out of military, out of the mortgages, out of going to work, out of marriage and family, and lifted above into the transcendent realm to say the God of the universe is revealing himself to us. 
And we don't have time for a full study of that word glory. This is just the beginning, just the intro. We're not even to the message yet. But glory was the purpose of God in creation. Glory is the purpose of God for humanity. Glory is the purpose of salvation. Glory is the purpose of the church, that the manifold wisdom of God may be known in the heavenly realms, that the church literally preaches back to the heavens, the glories of God. And Jesus said to the Father in his last high priestly prayer, Father, let them see my glory. The universe was made to show the glory of God, and you and I were made to respond to it. So Psalm 19 opens by pointing out the noise in the sky. So now we're there. So follow along with me. The heavens declare the glories of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there's nothing hidden from its heat. As you scan those verses, you see the glory and the majesty and the power and the beauty of our God. It says the heavens proclaim. Literally, the skies above us, creation is shouting out, the skies are announcing, the heavens are the preacher, and all of the earth, including us, is the audience, and this preacher never shuts up. This preacher continues to preach and never dies and never gives up and never resigns and never gets it wrong. In fact, it personifies day and night, one day speaking to the next day. Hey, before you dawn, remember the glory of God. And one night speaking to the next night, remember the glory of God, the glory of God, the glory of God. And they're like this great antiphonal choir, like the choir we had here today. If there was another choir in the balcony shouting back and forth, echoing to one another, glory of God, glory of God, glory of God, glory of God, day to day and night tonight proclaiming the glory of God. But then it says, in silence, without words, it's not an audible voice that you go out and you hear, and yet the testimony is deafening, that without speech or an audible voice, the report about God's glory continues to be made, a silent but overwhelming witness that is shouted throughout the world. So you lift your eyes to the mountaintops, you stand at the seashore, you stand in the middle of a vast desert, you look at a sunrise, you look at a sunset, you stand in a rainfall, you stand in a blizzard, you stand in creation, and all of them are saying to you, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God, there is a God. There is a God in silence. Creation shouts to us. There's a God. There's a God. And with speed and strength, the praise of God streaks across the sky. And we have to pause here because he uses a couple word pictures that are beautiful. The praise of God literally running from one end of the sky to the next. And two illustrations, like a bridegroom leaving the bride chamber and like a racer breaking the finish line tape. And you read that and you need to know a little bit about Israel's marriage history. Because I read that and I kind of think, so on his honeymoon morning, the guy's leaving the bride chamber? I don't know. I don't get this. I don't want to leave the bridal chamber. No, you got it backwards. In ancient Israel, did you know in ancient Israel, women, the bride didn't know the wedding date. Did you know that? You got engaged and the wedding date would happen when the bridegroom had a room ready for you. 
And so the bridegroom would go home to his father's house and he would begin to build a room onto his father's home. And that room is where you are going to make your new home in your your husband's father's house. So he builds that room and it might take him six months. It might take him 12 months. It might take him 18 months if he's slow, but he works away until he has the bride chamber ready. And on the day he has the bride chamber ready and decorated and completely ready to bring his bride home, then he makes his way either across the village or to the next city. And the bridal party marches with that bride. It's why in the New Testament, the the parable of the, the, the bridesmaids who weren't ready and weren't waiting, you say, well, how could they not be ready? The wedding date is set. No, because she didn't know the wedding date. She just knew the bridegroom was coming. And so they had to watch and be ready and waiting. And so you think of that bridegroom. He's now done all this construction. He has this room and he is anxious to be married and he is running to get his bride. That's what it says. Or like the the racer who's running in a race and he is breaking the finish line tape. The sun shoots across the sky declaring the glory of God. And both those images speak of the vitality and the strength and the joy. The sun eagerly declaring the glories of God. And like the heat of the sun that is felt everywhere, so too the glory of God is on display. In other words... Nothing can hide from the sun's rays and nothing and no one can hide from the glory of God from one horizon to the next. The proclamation of the heavenly bodies is universal. You cannot escape God's glory. And Paul picks this theme up in the New Testament. One of those poignant thoughts are there in Romans 1 where he says God's fame is obvious to the world. What can be known about God is plain to them, Romans 1 tells us. God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. In other words, creation is giving testimony to every person on the planet. However, however, Why is it that your neighbors who live beside you can look at the same glories of the heavens, the beauty of the mountains, the crashing waves of the seashore, and not recognize the Creator? Why is it when they are subject to the same testimony that you and I see testified, hear testified every day, and it is this, because the natural person doesn't perceive the things of the Spirit? 1 Corinthians 2 tells us the natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. He's not able to understand them. They're spiritually discerned. And then it goes on in Corinthians 4 to say, not only are we born spiritually blind like this, we can't see spiritual things, but the God of this world, Satan himself, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So you're born spiritually blind, and Satan comes up behind you, pulls a blindfold over your eyes, so you're doubly blind because he does not want us to see and hear and understand the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And so God who said, go back to creation, let there be light. God who said, let light shine in darkness has shone into our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. This is an amazing truth because what it tells us is there's an impossibility that only God accomplishes. There is something that the Spirit of God must do that none of us have the power to do. We can testify to the work of God. We can give witness to the glories in the heavens. We can speak of our personal journey and relationship with the Lord. But until somebody reaches into that human heart and turns the light switch on, it just runs off their back like water off a duck. 
And you say, who has the ability to turn to another human being and reach into that heart and turn the light on? Not me, not you. Only the Spirit of God can do that. And it is why we need to be praying for our nation. The things that we cannot do, we will do our part. We are his ambassadors. We are his hands, his feet, his voice, his testimony, his witness and justice and mercy and love and gospel. But unless the Spirit of God shows up first and turns the light on so they can receive it, all of that work is for naught. The Holy Spirit has got to blow from one end of the country to the next. Creation has sometimes been referred to as God's natural revelation. And then the word, it segues right into where David is going, is God's special revelation. You see, Romans 1 reminds us that creation speaks, but Romans 10 asks this question, how can they call on one they've not heard? And then the paragraph ends by saying, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You see, both in Romans and in here in Psalm 19, we're reminded of the necessity of the word, that hard hearts and darkened minds must be awakened. And nature can alert us to a creator, but creation cannot convert the soul. And so David's thoughts are turned to the written word. And in the next five verses, he gives six descriptors and six effects, if you will, there in verse 7 to 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great Reward. There are six different words, attractiveness, beauty, and worth, these phrases, and each of these phrases is worth a study unto itself. But if you were to boil it down, it is simply this. These are the words of God, and God speaks, and God reveals himself to us. He is not silent. He speaks in creation, and he speaks through this book. He wants to be known. And the powerful ability of this book, unlike any other book on the planet, to pick it up in ink on paper, and yet it comes alive and it speaks to our soul. And it says the law is perfect, reviving the soul. The word is translated in many ways, converting the soul, restoring, returning, recovering, renewing. In other words, it is the word that calls me back to God. The word that is saying to me and to you, come home, child, come home, child, come home, child. Its testimony is sure, it says. Absolutely count on it. It can make simple people wise. I am so glad for that phrase because the vast majority of us are just simple people, right? I'm sure in a room like this, there's probably some PhDs in this room, and I'm, sure, I'm glad God gave you a giant brain. But most of us are just ordinary, simple people. And the Word says He makes simple people wise, and He takes the weak to shame the strong. It says in verse 8, the precepts are right, they rejoice our heart. In other words, those who drink at this fountain, this living water, find God's glory and grace and love, and we find exceeding joy. The commandment is pure, enlightening the eyes. That can be turned two ways. My eyes are opened, I see it, I understand it now. I once was blind, but now I see. And then turn the light the other way, the searching light of the word that reveals in me who I am and who God is. 
The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules are true and righteous, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. And then verse 11, wrapping it up, and there is a warning. Do not be a fool. There's danger ahead. This is a light to your path. Lift your eyes. For in following these words, there is great reward. In other words, you can count on this book. You can take these words to the bank without defect or error. This book will not mislead you. Its reliability and its utter trustworthiness. You can build your life on this book is what it says. So the word awakens me to my need. And the other outcome that is implied is it calls me to respond. And we see David's response with now segueing into this next response. Oh God, cleanse me and hold me back from my sin and accept me and cover my guilt, my rock and my redeemer. Those, those last three verses, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. You see, David is awakened. As the light of the word of God shines into the human heart, not only are we blown away by its beauty and the majesty and the glory of God, but simultaneously we are also aware of our own sinfulness and weakness. And like Isaiah standing in God's presence, we have this imagery of seeing the Lord, but then he turns and he sees us and I am undone. I can't stand in this holy presence. You see, the word is like this blazing light that reveals every hidden corner of my soul. Hebrews 4 tells us it's like a sword that can divide between joint and marrow. The word comforts us, but it also confronts us. It wounds us and it heals us. It gives light and life. It exposes my need. And my only response has to be, oh God, who can stand? And David cries out for the salvation that only a redeemer can bring because, now listen carefully, because of this, as much as the law is, as it says right here, perfect and sure and right and pure and clean and true, yes and amen, the law is also a crushing weight. And you need to hear this and understand it. If you do not know the law, if you have not read the law, if you don't really know what David is referring to, because David didn't have the whole Bible. Certainly the New Testament was not written, and most of the Old Testament was not yet written. What he refers to when he refers to the law are the books of Moses. The first five books of your Bible called the Pentateuch. I don't know how long it's been since you've read the first five books, but if you want to boil it down to this, basically you could say, if you obey these words, you will be blessed. And if you disobey these words, you will be cursed. It's basically what those first five books say. And, and in some ways it sounds fair and right and just and true, because if God is the creator of the universe... If he knit us together and if he is the maker and he knows what is best for us, then he has every right in the world to give us a handbook that would say, if you want your life to flourish, then you should live your life this way. And if you don't want your life to flourish, then just disobey what I've given to you. It sounds right and it makes sense, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. If you know your Bible well, you will know that the standard is absolute perfection. Not just the Old Testament. 
the New Testament as well. Jesus, Jesus said this. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. James said, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. And Paul devotes an entire chapter of the book of Romans to basically this subject. I suck. You can laugh at that if you want. He says that the evil that I don't want to do is exactly what I end up doing. And the good things that I want to do, I don't end up doing. What a wretched man I am. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he spins this chapter. And so many Christians I know have taken to Romans 7 and go, oh, that's me, Paul, that's me me, I understand it. And they quit reading right there. You can't quit reading right there. If you stop reading there, it's the most depressing passage of scripture ever. Chapter eight is the chapter of victory. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but Paul turns the corner. What a wretched man I am. The very next verse, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. You see, it's true. I can't keep the law. Try as I may, I can't seem to obey it. I don't have the ability. But here is where the gospel comes into play. That what we are powerless to do on our own, Jesus Christ accomplished on our behalf. Romans 5 says, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 2 Corinthians 5 says, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what theologians call the great exchange. That God looks at Jesus Christ and his sinless perfection and his holiness and his righteousness, and he takes all of that and he credits it to our account. He takes our sin and he places it on Jesus. And so when he looks at us, if your life is hidden in Christ, when he looks at you right now in the moment, not someday in the future when you stand before his throne, but literally right now from the moment he saved you, he looks at you and what does he see? He doesn't see your sin. You know your sin very well. You know your failings, but it says the Lord has credited the perfect life of Jesus. If your life is hidden in Jesus, what God sees when he looks at you is sinless perfection. Galatians 3 says Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse for us. That's a good place for an amen. We need some Pentecostals in the room. Come on, there we go. David cries out, cleanse me, O God, and keep me back. But inherent in that statement is the conclusion that I am helpless on my own to obey and the crushing weight of the law is impossible. Who can stand? And the answer is there's only one. There was one who lived the life that you and I could not live. And he died the death that you and I deserved to die. And he rose from the grave, victorious over sin and death and the grave. And the scriptures say now he is seated at the Father's right hand. And even in this moment, he is always interceding for us. He is praying on our behalf. The universe, you see, was made to display the glory of God. The scriptures were made to display the glory of God. And we were made to see it and respond. And oh, that our heart cry in 2017 would be like Isaiah's. Oh God, that you would rend the heavens and come down. That the mountains might quake 
at your presence. What would it be like in Canada today if the Spirit of God blew across the land and literally we were on our faces? That when people gathered in houses of worship, we could not come casually. We could not chit-chat. We couldn't text through the service. We couldn't drink our coffees because we were so in the presence of God's holiness and majesty. How desperately we need this in our day. When was the last time that you encountered the glory of God? Have you listened to the shouts that are going on? Have your eyes and ears been awakened? This morning as you got out of bed, did you realize that the universe was yelling at you? Was saying there's a God, there's a God, there's a God. As we come into spring and the trees come back on the, uh, the leaves, we're told that the trees of the field clap their hands. They sing the praises of God. As you lift your eyes to the North Shore Mountains, as you stand at the waves of the ocean, as you walk across the vast prairies and look at sunsets and sunrises, no matter where you go on the planet, creation is shouting to you and to me, there is a God. How long has it been since you've been aware of that? Since you've gotten out of the daily life and stopped worrying about how am I going to get the next contract and pay the bills and what about my sickness and my relationship, but to get lifted out of that for a moment in time and to say there's a God who is bigger than all of this. The day will come, we're told, when the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the earth and every knee will bow. And the question is, will we bow before him today? I want to challenge you. I would encourage you this week, if you can make it happen this week, get out under a night sky. And you might have to get out of the city. In fact, I'd encourage you, if you can, get out somewhere completely black because the the ambient light of the city even dims the, the stars. But when you get out in the pure blackness and you see the vastness of the universe, or go stand on the seawall and listen to the waves lap against the shore and look at the glorious North Shore mountains and say, there has to be a God. Would you stand together with me? I want to pray for three groups of people as we close. And I know in an audience this size that there are at least three and probably many more, but there are some here would say, you know what, I'm not even sure that I believe in this God you've been talking about. I don't even know if he exists. And over the years, I've had the privilege of praying with a lot of people of prayer. You can put it in any different words, but I just call it the skeptic's prayer, and I think that God answers the skeptic's prayer. Because God already knows your heart anyway. And if in your honesty you would say, I don't even know if he exists. Number one, thank you that you're being honest with that doubt. And thank you that you're even here asking the question. And I would challenge you to just simply pray something along those lines. God, I don't even know if you exist. But if you do exist, if you are this all-powerful God that this book says you are, then would you show yourself to me in such a way to make it real that I would know that you exist? That may be as far as you can get today, and God bless you for that. And there are probably many others in this room, like myself, who say, oh God, I just need to be reminded. I need to get out of bed in the morning, and the first thing I need to be thinking about is not what I'm going to do that day at work, but I need to be thinking about the glory of God, and I need to be reminded that all night long while I've been sleeping, that the moon and the stars have been shouting to one another, this antiphonal choir, the glory of God, the glory of God, and the sunset and the sunrise has already struck across the because I'd never get up before the sun. It's already run across the sky shouting the glory of God. Lord, remind me. And as I open your word, Lord, make it come alive to me speak into my life. And then there may be some here who say, you know what, I've heard this gospel thing before and I've thought about it and I've prayed about it and I've never, just for whatever reason, it's never made sense, but today's the day I need to say yes. And as simple as that, that's all you need to say is yes.
So let's pray together. Lord, I want to pray for men and women in this room who may just in all honesty say, I am that skeptic. I don't even really know if I believe that God exists. There's a lot of things going on in my mind. There's a lot of explanations that the world offers us for where we came from and where we're headed. But Lord, if you do exist, if you are out there, then I pray, Father, that you would make yourself real to these individuals who are honest enough to express their doubt. And I pray, Lord, that even this week, that you would put them into circumstances and situations that are so utterly out of the ordinary that they could not deny there must be something more. That you would show yourself to them in a way that is meaningful to them. Reveal yourself. You are the God who reveals yourself. So, Father, for these men and women who are asking, would you show yourself? And, Lord, for each and every one of us in this room, I pray that you would awaken us to the glory of God, the testimony that's being shouted every day in the heavenly realms and in creation all around us. And through your word, Father, would you awaken us. We would just confess corporately, Lord, that it's been too long since we've been on our faces in worship. It's been too long since we were encaptured by the glory and the holiness of God and we desperately, even corporately together, need to regain the glory of God. And then, Lord, I do pray for men and women here today who have heard the gospel, have heard that you are the Lord of the universe, you want to be the Lord of their lives, but for whatever reason, up until today, they've not been able to say yes to that. They've not been able to surrender to it. And I pray, Lord, that even in this moment, that in a very simple way, they would just be able to say, yes, Lord, I take my hands off. I'm ready. I confess my need of you. I acknowledge what the word says your son did in my behalf. I see you as the Lord of the universe. And today on a March weekend in 2017, today's the day I want to say you need to be Lord of my life, Father. So I lay my life down for the very first time. And I say, be the Lord of my life, not just my Savior, but my Lord. Enter my life and take control. And so, Father, I pray for this great congregation, and I pray for our city, Father. I pray for Metro Van and all of BC and, in fact, across the nation, Lord, that you would blow up and down the streets and the sidewalks and the farmyards and the banking centers and everything in between, that the Spirit of God would begin to do the work that only the Spirit of God can do. And, Lord, I want to pray for these men and women something different. I pray that this week you'd put them in conversations with some non-believing friends who ask questions that they wouldn't ask unless your spirit was working in their life. That in the marketplace and in the condo and in the neighborhood and in the schoolyard and wherever we find ourselves, on the sports field and etc., that you would orchestrate conversations where our friends are being awakened by your spirit. And that we don't have to bulldoze our way through that door, but that you would throw that door wide open for us. And then give us the courage to step in and speak for you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.